I was like in my thirties. And then there was like a 24 year old that shows up into my post suite with a feature film that got, he got 3 million bucks for, and I'm editing it and I'm doing all the posts and, and this guy, and he's just like, I've never seen Blade Runner. I'm like, shut the hell up. And then of course I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there editing like, you know, why don't I, I'm, I could do this. I could go oh, this crap. This is all crap. Look at it. I can't even save this movie. And I could have done such a much better. Why won't someone give me $3 million and blah, 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 blah. I was an angry and bitter filmmaker for a long time. And then everything changed after I started launched uh, Indie Film Household. Welcome to The Practical Filmmaker, an educational podcast brought to you by the Filmmaker Institute and Sunscreen Film Festival, where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and the steps they took to find their success today. On today's show, Indie Film Hustle's Alex Ferrari chats distribution, balance, and an exclusive intro to his newly launched business, The Filmmaker Process, that provides services to get your film funded, finished, and distributed. Find the full transcripts and more at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. I'm your host, Tanya Musgrave, and today we have indie director and host, blogger, educator, slash guru of indie film hustle, Alex Ferrari. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I'm like, I'm like super stoked. So I, I would like to start with your journey so far. How did you get here for the people? I've worked as everything you can imagine uh, from every position almost on the set, but I really made my bones in post-production and commercial directing when I first came up as a commercial director, music video director, and uh, and post-production. And then where I really made a living was post-production, and then I would occasionally go out and do uh, directing gigs. And I've done that for a long time, worked on, I think I've delivered over 60 feature films in post-production as a editor, online editor, colorist, post-supervisor, VFX supervisor, uh, and and all sorts of things that we could do in post-production. So I've seen a lot and have been a lot and and I got a lot of shrapnel, uh, (laughs) as I like to call it, uh, in the business. My dream has always been to be, you know, a feature film director and and the dream of every independent filmmaker is to make a living being a filmmaker. It's basically Mm -hmm. always been my dream as well. So I've been blessed to direct two feature films, both I got released, uh, distributed, sold. Uh, my first film was made for about $5,000 and was licensed to Hulu for a little while. So that mm. was great. Uh, mm. My second film that I just did world premiered at Raindance in England. Uh, so I've, I've had a really interesting journey. Uh, when I was 26, I almost made a $20 million film for a mobster. Uh, and uh, I, 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 it's a, I wrote a book about it called Shooting for the Mob, uh, which is my whole year-long journey where uh, an actual gangster I was basically locked in to this deal with the devil to make a movie about his life and our production offices were in a racetrack and all that kind of good stuff. Hollywood took him seriously. And then I was flown out to Hollywood and I met the biggest movie stars in the world, the biggest producers in LA. I'm at the Chateau Marmont, I'm at the Ivy. And I even have a whole chapter dedicated to Batman where I went to Batman's house and hung oh out with gosh. Batman at his uh, 10,000 acre ranch what? talking about how he was going to be in my movie. And, and, you know, and I was in, in, in the, you know, in a penthouse screening room, watching the, tr- the sizzle reel I made with a, this billion dollar producer and it, yeah. all this crazy while I have, while my life is being threatened on a daily basis from a bipolar gangster. Awesome. So I, I've gone through some stuff in the business and uh, in 2015, I decided to launch uh, the indie film hustle podcast and blog to help filmmakers because I got tired of seeing filmmakers get kind of like chewed up and spit out by this business. And again, being a post guy, I was in the room eight hours a day, 10, 12 hours a day with filmmakers, producers, listening to the stories, hearing their tales of, whoa, how distributors were screwing them over and Mm -hmm. how they didn't get paid or this drama there, that drama there. And that, in addition to all of my own personal experience, 
being in the business, I was like, I looked out in the marketplace and in the, in the podcast world, and I just didn't see anybody that was telling the truth as I knew it and yeah. was coming from a place of experience. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was a lot of people out there talking about it and from their point of view and their perspective, but no one really that I saw that, that had real experience in the business was talking real. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was all like, Rubber oh, meets the road. yeah, go to film school. You're going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. Like, yeah. that's not the world we live in. So yeah. I wanted to put out a resource that could prepare filmmakers. And then then after that, screenwriters for the realities of our business. And, you know, one of my quotes that I always say is like, follow your dreams, but don't be an idiot. Mm. Uh, no matter who you are, no matter what level of success you have, whether you have Oscars, whether you've made billions of dollars, you're going to get punched in the face by this business mm -hmm. at every stage of your career. Steven Spielberg still gets punched in his face. I promise you. Now, mm -hmm. the difference is that he's taken a few punches over his career. He knows how to take the punch and keep going. He knows how to duck. He knows how to weave. And occasionally mm -hmm. he knows not to be where the punch is being thrown. Yeah. And that yeah. is time. But everybody gets hit. And I think a lot of filmmakers walk into this business not knowing that there's fists going to be coming their way. Mm. And then when they get hit, they're out. They yeah. just get knocked out and they're gone for forever from the business. Or they get so discouraged that they just become angry and bitter. And we all know an angry and bitter filmmaker. And if we don't know an angry, bitter filmmaker, you are the angry and bitter filmmaker that everybody <laughs> else knows. Because uh, <laughs> so, yeah. I was an angry and bitter filmmaker. Oh, God, I was pissed. Imagine <laughs> I had I was like in my 30s. Oh, and you. then there was like a 24 year old that shows up into my post suite with a feature film that got, he got three million bucks for no. to make some stars in it. And I'm like and I'm editing it and I'm doing all the posts. And, and this guy <laughs> editing this guy, it, I'm no. editing it. He's and this like, guy's salt and, in the the, wound. and this kid in the background and he's just like. I've never seen Blade Runner. I'm like, shut the <laughs> hell up. God. And then, of course, I'm, I'm I'm sitting there editing like this mother. You know, why don't I? I'm, I could do this. I could go oh, this crap. This is all crap. Look at it. I can't even save this movie. And I could have done such a much better. Why won't someone give me three million dollars? I'm blah, blah, seriously, blah. seriously, seriously. So like, what dues so did you pay? Yeah. yeah, exactly. What how what exactly what dues did you pay? Like, how dare you? So I was an angry and bitter filmmaker for a long time, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> and yeah. till I realized it just wasn't helping me, wasn't getting me anywhere. And then everything changed after I started launched uh, Indie Film Hustle. The, my mm. entire career, my entire world changed um, for the better. The moment I started being of service mm. to my community and to be filmmakers and so many filmmakers out there, so many podcasters and blogs and things like that. A lot of times they lead with trying to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, and trying to get money from filmmakers. Yeah. And I don't, I give away, I mean, I give away so much content. Mm -hmm. It's obscene how much I give away. Yeah, and yeah. I only charge for a little bit, but if anyone's like, oh, I can't afford this course that you've done. I'm like, that's okay. There is 700 hours of top-notch interviews and conversations mm -hmm. and content that you can go into for free. And if mm -hmm. you never pay me a dime, I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. If that helps you on your journey, I'm good with that. So I always lead with service. And the moment that I did that, doors swung open mm -hmm. and opportunities presented themselves. And it didn't happen overnight, but yeah. it's, you know, it started to gradually grow. And yeah. um, I've been doing this in July. It's going to be six years. Like that particular pivot is just, it's so striking to me because it reminds me of a book. It was something simple. It was just called Love is a Killer App. And he he was nice. a guy who had made multi-million dollar deals on a handshake and just just talking about the flip of being worried about where you're going in your own life versus 
putting out something great into the universe where like you can just like hey hey actually I want to help you and I mean it's a it's a mindset change it's like the difference between like worry and gratitude you know if you want your dream to come true help somebody else with theirs ah, and yeah. it's so true because I've had the, the blessing and the privilege of talking to a lot of, of my listeners over the mm -hmm. years at festivals or at AFM or at events and things mm -hmm. like that. Listening to my podcast has changed their life. This changed their career. They read one of my books and just goes, oh my God, my whole world has been upside, it's been changed upside down. Yeah. Uh, one guy's like, you saved me half a million dollars from signing a horrible deal <laughs> with this distributor after yeah. I listened to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And then I, then I bought your course and, <laughs> and then now like, you know, and I mm -hmm. went through your course and now I'm prepared to deal with these distributors and things mm -hmm. like that. And I can't tell you, it's like a, it's a high, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a drug that I'm addicted to now. So I mm -hmm. need to continuously do that to, to know that I'm making that kind of effect on people's lives is really addictive. Like it's, yeah. it's this, it's the same thing as when you give, if you, we're kind of, we're wired to give, we're wired to be collaborative as a species. Mm -hmm. So when we give a gift and you see the happiness in someone else's face, we get endorphin rushes. That's, yeah. that's chemical, that's wiring. We're <laughs> wired for that. Yeah. That's why I'm just addicted to doing as much as I do. I might've gone a little overboard and nobody, every, every, every time I get on a podcast, the first thing they have podcast, I was like, how, how are you, how are you doing this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand. How do, how do you do yeah, this? I don't, do, I, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And then the second part, the second question after was like, how are you making money? Like how, I mean, you live in L you live in LA. That's not cheap. How do you that's do this? That's a valid question. That's a valid question. Like, why don't you answer that? <laughs> I sell, like, how I sell, about just for I, me? It's basically, basically the, 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 and for people listening, and I wrote it in my book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, is building ancillary product lines and mm -hmm. services that are just multiple revenue streams. Mm -hmm. So it's Passing some of them, five bucks here, 10 bucks there, 500 bucks here, a thousand bucks there. Yeah. And at the end of the month, it starts to add up. And yeah, then and stuff gets paid for. And stuff gets paid for. And then all yeah. of a sudden you look at your balance sheet, you're like, oh, oh, that's working. So when mm -hmm. one goes down, it's like diversification 101. Mm -hmm. When one one's yeah. like, oh, that affiliate isn't doing a whole lot of money this year. Yeah. But, oh, but this has gone up and, and it kind of balances it out. And then you bring in a new revenue stream and mm -hmm. like, oh, boom, that just jumped up. A little mm -hmm. bit of money and oh boom that just jumped up and some things that were huge for me three years ago are nothing to me now yeah, because yeah. they just they dry up the thing yeah. people are not you know i used to be master classes like number one filmmaking <laughs> affiliate like cool. i sold more aaron sorkin yeah, and warner herzog <laughs> master classes than probably <laughs> anybody and now everybody has masterclass, so it's not as big of a revenue stream mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah, so yeah. things like that. But um, they always yeah. ask me, do you have sponsors? I'm like, eh, occasionally. It's not yeah. a big thing. Like, I, that's not a revenue stream for me. If wow. it comes, it's great. It's, it's, that was, it's a, that was a thought in my head. I was like, do you have sponsors? But um, yeah. I, sponsors because, because, because podcasters think, because this is the one, this is the traditional way podcasters make money. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. When sponsors show up, it's fantastic. And it's great. Yeah. It's fun money. And it's like, woohoo, like, great. Yeah. I don't have to work hard for it. It's great. But I use my podcast as revenue generation for a thousand other revenue streams that are much more valuable to me yeah. than a sponsor. Yeah. And I do have ads. I mean, I do run mm -hmm. ads, but that's some money. It's not a whole lot of money every month, mm -hmm. um, but it's something. But yeah, that's a little bit.
I know people who are like, they're teaching ESL classes, you know, at the same time. I mean, they're getting up at, you know, 5 a.m. to do that while they, you know, like they, they work on a, an editing gig here. And then they, you know, like they piecemeal them, themselves out. So the thing is this, the problem with most mentalities as filmmakers is everything you just told me, like, oh, they have this gig over here, that gig over there. It is all dollars for hours. Mm -hmm. So that is the limitation. You only have so many hours in a day to make money Mm -hmm. uh, when you're trading your time for money. And most of humanity has been trained to do dollars for hours. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be high dollars. It could be 300 bucks an hour as an attorney but it's still a limit to how much money you can make. Everybody's got 24 hours in a day. Yeah. Nobody has more, nobody has less. It is 24 hours in a day. So the key is to create assets for yourself that generate revenue Mm. passively. And when I say passively, it's a little misleading because you're working. But when I say passive means that you're not doing dollars for hours. Real estate is a quote unquote passive revenue stream, Mm. meaning that every month rent comes in, off of an asset that is creating revenue for you. What I've done is I've created digital assets mm-hmm. in the digital world. So mm-hmm. a book is yeah. a digital asset. And then off of the one book, I've got audiobook, ebook, <laughs> paperback, all of those. And then in the book itself, they're lead generators to go to my website to mm-hmm. upsell them to courses or just introduce them to my ecosystem and mm-hmm. give them more free content. Or if they wanna go down a paid route, they can go down paid routes and mm-hmm. so on. Imagine hundreds of those yeah. spread out through a, a bunch of different ways. So as filmmakers, if you can find ways to create assets for yourself, so a film that you own and can put up on platforms and and, and sell and create uh, multiple revenue streams around a film, that's the whole film entrepreneur method. Those are assets. So I mm-hmm. just interviewed a filmmaker who, who's been making money for the last 10 years strictly off of just basically three or four documentaries he's made. Hmm. But he has a niche audience that he's focused on. He's created multiple ancillary products and services around it. And he's been able to generate obscene amounts of money off of just that. Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, that's what the whole thing is about. And I I literally break down this, something I call the Film Entrepreneur Method, Mm -hmm. which is how filmmakers can create a film. But when they're creating the film, they're thinking about a niche audience so you're focusing on a niche audience. That's the key to the, mm-hmm. that's the key. If you try to make a broad comedy, you're going to fail. If you make a vegan chef comedy, romantic comedy, <laughs> then you could focus that on the, on the vegans, on the vegetarians, on paleo, on people who are, yeah. you know, uh, that audience, you can target those audience. You can reach that audience. And then you could also create a cooking a course on how to become a vegan. And then maybe possibly some books and maybe team up with someone else and maybe sell some ancillary or affiliate pro- yeah. pro- products for people. So if you have an audience, figure out what they want and what will serve them and sell multiple services, products, whatever, because they're going to buy those products or services mm-hmm. yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Might as well them come to you because if you've built up that trust with a film, that will help. So that's one way that filmmakers can go. But if you're doing the dollars for hours thing, try to always have multiple skill sets, multiple tools in your toolbox. So when one revenue stream, which is let's say editing mm-hmm. uh, dries up or, oh, you know, COVID hit production's not really happening right mm-hmm. now. Really helpful to understand editing at that point in the game. Yeah, so if you're yeah. a camera assistant and then all of a sudden COVID happened and those, there's no production for seven months or mm-hmm. longer, mm-hmm. maybe I could still do editing or so you yeah. constantly should be building skill sets. And like we said, before the interview started, I've essentially ran the entire indie 
film hustle universe, which is yeah. pretty broad yeah. <laughs> by myself yeah, no. for years, meaning yeah. that I did all the work myself with yeah. very little help from anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I was only able to do that because I built so many tools. I put so many tools in my toolbox over the years that I'm like, oh, I didn't like when, before I launched the new film. Also, I didn't know how to really build a website. Mm-hmm. So I taught myself. Yeah. And now awesome. I build websites. People ask me all the time. Can you build my website? I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I will never build a website for anybody else. <laughs> but I could I, that again. <laughs> abs- never again. But I could uh, I could easily charge five thousand dollars a website mm-hmm. com- comfortably. And yeah. build out because I build out websites like water, as you yeah. guys know. Yeah. As you yeah. know. I have so many different websites. <laughs> all this, but that's a skill set that I build. So now mm-hmm. that's something I always have in my back pocket. And then editing and then color grading and VFX and camera work and yeah. all these other things that I do. So I'm constantly broadening all the different revenue streams that I can create. Yeah. And I think where filmmakers get caught up is like, I'm only going to be an editor. I'm like, I wish you the best of luck yeah. because the, the marketplace will change. Yeah. Well, I mean, piggybacking on that, um, this this actually does come from a this, this is a listener question from a student. She was curious what some of those pros and cons of each would be. For instance, a lot of what you're saying is if one would continue wanting to be a, an indie filmmaker and having that kind of freedom and not necessarily being worried about the union and, you know, like that kind of thing. But she was still curious, like, what are the pros and cons of each? Like, which one do you think is better in like some areas or weaker in others? Specifically because in traditional Hollywood, like some of the people who are like they get into the union and that's kind of like all they're do. That's their shtick. That's, you know, the the alley, the lane that they are in. Um, some of them like they they don't feel the need to diversify or, you know, like that kind of thing. And the hustle, per se, looks a little bit different for them. So, so as far as being an independent filmmaker and, and a film entrepreneur and mm-hmm. an entrepreneurial filmmaker, yeah. you need to have a specific kind of personality to do that. Mm-hmm. That's not for everybody. It's mm-hmm. just not, you know, I can't be an accountant. You <laughs> yeah. do not want me to be your accountant. Absolutely not. <laughs> neither, Absolutely. <don't> <laughs> you do not want me to proofread your book. You do not want that. I promise you. Yeah. So everyone's got their own lane. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what that lane is for yourself. Now, when you're in a union, there's no guarantee of work if you mm-hmm. get in, mm-hmm. but it depends on your market. It depends on where you are. It depends on the world that we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 there's so many different things that happen. Unions are wonderful and I love them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can be, uh, they could be anti-work, meaning mm-hmm. that, oh, you can't work on anything other than union. So that limits you, especially if you're on the lower end of the union spectrum. Mm-hmm. If you're in the, you're, you're a big guy with a lot of credits and, you know, you can, you know, that's different. But mm-hmm. when you're just starting out, you just got to hustle for work. Mm-hmm. So depending on the state you live in and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen that work. I mean, I, I, I lived in a right to work state and I also lived in California. I live in California. Mm-hmm. So there's a completely different mindset there. Oh yeah. There's people who will be happy working at a job for the next 10 or 20 years doing what they love to do. Yeah. For me, that's personal hell. Like I can't do that. I, <laughs> I am unemployable. Uh, I am, I am, I am intellectually unemployable. I cannot work for somebody else. I can work Mm -hmm. with other people. I can partner with other people. I can work with companies, Mm -hmm. but I cannot be, I don't, I can't have a boss like that. I've been fired from the two 
full-time jobs I've ever had. Years ago, this is like <laughs> 20 years ago when I did that. So you need to ask yourself the question, what kind of person am I? Am I willing to put in the work to be an entrepreneur? Am I willing to put in the work to hustle that hard to get those jobs and, 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 and get those different skill sets and really get out there? If that's not inside you, then try to go down more of a traditional path, but understand that there is no guarantee in this business that whatever traditional path you walk into could be this, the the wool can, the carpet could be pulled right from under your feet at any moment mm-hmm. things change so often before in the 50s 60s 70s 80s even in the 90s things were a lot more stable mm-hmm. and things didn't move so quickly mm-hmm. now things are changing so rapidly our business is essentially under attack the theatrical business is gone mm-hmm. so the world shifted so rapidly over the last year before that it was changing yeah. so there's 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 no real stability anymore mm-hmm. i'm not saying i'm from the streets but someone who li- like we're, you know hustles the streets yeah. and people who are in corporate america all day both of them are, are going to have difficult times in each one but i promise you the street hustler when they get into corporate america oh they'll figure it out <laughs> but corporate America going down to the street level, they will probably die. Um, and I'm not, you know, but that's that kind of hustle that yeah. you need to have inside you. And mm-hmm. I've, I've been doing that since I was nine. Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. I was hustling garage sales when I was nine and 10 mm. selling stuff and make, you know, I was the only 10 year old with a fat wad of hundred dollar bills <laughs> in their pocket, going out and buying them baseball cards, comic books, and garbage bill kits. You'd have no idea what I just said, but um, <laughs> I know you don't um, because you're a young and that's fine. But, but I was, but I was hustling at that age. And that's something that was completely inside of me. And I've been a hustler in that yeah. way all of my life. So that's just the way I'm built. So you have to ask that, that question of yourself. A bit ago, I, I remember listening to your one of your podcasts. It was like about traditional distribution just being dead. And yeah, that, like, not e- yeah, like not even the distributors know what to do. Like everyone's just throwing mm-hmm. stuff to the wall and just seeing what sticks. And I'm curious what changes you've seen. Distributors now, a lot of them really don't know what to do. What they had ho- held on to for decades is gone now. So what mm-hmm. was the thing that made money was mm-hmm. DVD. Yeah. And DVD yeah. DVDs boom in the late 90s, early 2000s, all the way up until probably 2010. My God, you could do Sniper 7 and it was an automatic $5 million done. $5 yeah. million, easily because of DVD sales and international DVD sales and all this stuff. So DVD was the savior. But when streaming showed up, it started to just completely destroy. And now DVD market is essentially dead. For the most part, there's still people making a lot of money. Except for I saw one on your, your about like DVD not being dead. It's a niche, no, but it's a niche. And he has an, it's a niche audience and he's mm-hmm. selling, uh, selling DVDs out of the back of his car essentially yeah. and, and yeah. make it and making bank. And that's, mm-hmm. that's something you could do. But the mass market DVD market sales yeah. are, are just every year it's going down and Blu-ray's going down. And, and unfortunately, I think physical media might go away completely one day from the mm-hmm. major studios. I hope so not. I hope it stays around like vinyl does. Yeah, like or I record hope sales are, I mean, they're going back. Yeah, re- record sales are up. So I'm hoping that Blu-rays, which is still the best way to watch a movie at home, not theatrical, but at home, <laughs> it is the best way to watch a movie. It's mm-hmm. much better than any streaming compression. Mm-hmm. I hope that it will stay alive. But these distributors that have been holding on to the old traditional ways of doing things, they just can't grasp what to do. And they're trying to figure things out and they're trying to move. But literally things are moving month to month Mm -hmm. where before it took years 
if not decades for movement to happen. Hmm. Now it's happening so quickly that these older distribution companies, the dinosaurs, they just can't move fast enough. Yeah. It's hard for distributors to make money with films and they have the connections and they have mm -hmm. the outlets to put things on. So mm -hmm. that's why a lot of these predatory distributors will mm -hmm. then screw the filmmaker even harder and mm -hmm. make sure that the deals are structured in a way they're like, okay, we're gonna give you $10,000 upfront and the filmmaker's like, great. <laughs> and my movie costs $100,000 to make, I'm gonna get 10,000 upfront, great. I promise you that will be the only money you will ever see. Even mm -hmm. if you get that first check, because many times they just don't even pay that. But yeah. if, if they if that $10,000, don't make sure that your marketing cap, mm -hmm. which hopefully you've got one, because mm -hmm. if you don't, then you're absolutely screwed. Mm -hmm. But let's say your marketing cap that you put on a on a distribution contract, let's say it's $50,000, which is, it's the heavy handed to say the least, but okay. doable. I've seen $150,000 marketing caps yeah. on movies, which basically states that the distributor is going to spend uh, $50,000 <laughs> on marketing mm -hmm. your film to the masses. When they give you money up front, they know that they can make 20, 30, $40,000 instantly because they can call up their buddy in Germany. Hey, I got this movie. Do you want it for five grand? Great. Calls up the friends. Great. Calls up the streamer. Boom. They have output deals already. They already know it's a guarantee for them. Mm -hmm. When they hit that $50,000 mark, which is contractually where they have to start paying out to you, yeah. they stop. Yeah. They stop. They stop working. The movie dies right then and there. It dies. Mm -hmm. And they know that because it's on iTunes and Amazon and all these other places, uh, that's trickle money. That's like, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, hundred bucks. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. So they stop working and they do that to 10 filmmakers a month. Yeah. It's not a bad living. No, <laughs> of course not. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah and yeah. a lot of, and, and a lot of times it's not even money up front. Money yeah. up front is a rarity if you even get that. Yeah. But most of the times they're like, Oh, you don't like our deal. There's 15 other filmmakers behind you with 15 other movies. Oh yeah. That, it's it's that's, so that's the world we live in and, and that's uh that's why that was kind of like the genesis of that whole death of traditional yeah it's pretty it was pretty intense i remember when i released that <laughs> there is a there is a listener question about this one of our previous guests had mentioned this um kind of off interview he's just like yeah there's a there's a facebook group I think it's yours. It is. <laughs> hey, it's yours. It's protects yourself from predatory film distributors and aggregators. Filmmakers are just like, hey, have you heard of this company? And they're just like, dude, never, never stay away. And I think those resources are fantastic. But I mean, I, I, I want to know from you, this is the, the listener question, like what percentage of indie films like that get distribution or money back? You mean that make a profit? Or that distributors actually pay? I mean, how about both? That independent films that actually make a profit, probably 1%. Really? 1% or 2% of all filmmakers, all films. That make. I'm just honest. It's just yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. about mm -hmm. 1% to 2%, maybe 3 in that general world mm -hmm. that actually get paid by distributors, probably a little bit higher. You know, I'm, I'm going to say, and this, this is a number I'm literally pulling out of my, out of my rear end, mm. but that get money back, I'm going to say a good 20, probably 20, 25% of filmmakers will get money from their from their distributor. And I think I'm being kind of generous there. Yeah. But there's a lot of them that just don't. Yeah. Or they get so minuscule amounts or the reporting is kind of janked up or like Holly look, there's a there's a term called Hollywood accounting. Mm. The Me Too movement when it happened, hmm. it shined a light on a systemic issue in our industry. The casting couch was a punchline mm. in movies for decades. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, you want that part? You're going to have to sleep with the director or the producer on the casting couch. It mm-hmm. was a standard business as usual thing mm-hmm. for decades. It was just the way business was done. Mm-hmm. And then the Me Too movement happened and thank God all of that stopped. And now the abuses like with Scott Rudin and those kind of guys and obviously Harvey, um, mm-hmm. the, the abuse is not just physical, but now verbal mm-hmm. and, and all of that stuff. That's already kind of, but that was business as usual. When Chaplin, Fairbanks, and Pickford, the three biggest movie stars of the silent era, got together to create United Artists Mm. was because they were getting screwed by the distributors. (laughs) It has been around since the birth of our industry. So this systemic issue of being screwed by the distributor, screwed by the studio, Mm -hmm. has been with us since the first time Edison hand cranked something and you saw a horse jumping. Yeah. Like it, it's been around since then. So that systemic issue is mm-hmm. still with us. It is a, I've talked to distributors who they don't see what's wrong mm-hmm. because it's like, but that's just the way it's always been done. I had a distributor say to me, well, you just got a check. Most filmmakers don't even get a check. What are you complaining about? Yeah. Yeah. That was a quote. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, there is such a systemic problem. So mm-hmm. I, I've been saying this, that what's happening to independent filmmakers now by the traditional predatory distributors out there, not all distributors, mm-hmm. there's, there's a segment of them, is a financial raping, a financial mm-hmm. abuse of the filmmaker that needs to be, someone needs to shine a light on it. And I've, I've done a little bit of light shining in my day with what I do. But um, but there's still major, major issues. I mean, it's literally called Hollywood accounting. Like, and why do you think movie stars get 35 million bucks up front? Because yeah. they know they're going to get screwed on the end. Hell, yeah. Paramount said that Forrest Gump made no money. What? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was publicly out there that, oh, like, oh, yeah, we're still in the red on Forrest Gump. You mean the movie that won the Oscar and made $700 million worldwide oh, and it cost uh, 60? <laughs> Like you guys are really bad business people if, yeah. if that thing is still not made any money. Oh so, but gosh. that's the way Hollywood accounting works. Mm. It is a problem that's systemic with our with our, our business. You know, I think there are a lot of good distributors out there who pay, mm-hmm. a lot of honest uh, distributors who want to help filmmakers, but there are rare. I, I truly don't believe that the majority. Looking at your numbers of like the 1% versus the 20% that might actually get money back, you would still recommend the distribution, right? Depends on the movie. In the book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I'm telling you how to do this without a distributor or Mm. to build up a system where the exploitation of your film is not your major revenue stream. I created a system within the the Film Entrepreneur method where the movie being stolen from you and not giving you not getting paid by a predatory distributor is okay <laughs> because and it's wrong. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. shouldn't be done. I'm yeah. not suggesting you do, no. but if it happens, you've got all these other revenue streams that you control. Mm-hmm. If you can control the revenue streams, then you use the movie as a loss leader. You use the movie as free marketing <laughs> and then just put it out there and whatever happens, happens. And if I can make some money off of it, great. If I don't, that's fine too. But I promise you in the vegan chef movie com- conversation, you'll make more than the, the two ninety nine or three ninety nine rental on Amazon or iTunes. Mm. You'll make more selling a $50 online cooking course. You know, how many books will you sell? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, vegan books that have branded 
the name of the movie or something along those lines or how you work the whole story and how you do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a different mindset. It's a shift in mindset. And most filmmakers don't understand that. They just think mm -hmm. make movie, ugh. Uh, finish movie, ugh. Uh, go find distributor, ugh. Yeah. Sit back, collect check, ugh. Go to the beach. Like that is the way, but that's what we've been taught. Most of our, like that's what film school teaches. Yeah. Film schools don't teach multiple revenue streams mm. and how to become an entrepreneurial filmmaker. They teach you the traditional <laughs> way of making traditional way of making a movie, traditional way of posting a movie, traditional way of distributing a movie and, and how you have to go that. And okay. if they even teach that last part, it's a, yeah. it's a miracle. Most, most film schools don't even talk about that stuff. They just yeah. teach you the craft. Yeah. And I love film schools and I, yeah. and I, you know, I think they do a great part, but there's, some of them are not uh, a little behind. <laughs> I'm going to wrap a question up in some backstory. I'm actually currently at my alma mater right now. <laughs> this is their studio, helping mm -hmm. to produce a micro-budget feature. So like every four years, they put together a feature so the students have the opportunity to be part of a larger-scale project. Sure, sure, project, sure. You know. My question to you would be, what would be your advice for breaking out of that mold for this particular project, you know, for this micro-budget project? What's your advice for breaking out of that? What's your genre? The genre? Probably family. So it's a family film. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Uh, is there a dog that saves Christmas? <laughs> no, it's a chef who figures out balance. <laughs> It's it's a what? A chef who figures out balance, life balance okay. between the good. art and the rest of his chef, like the chef. So it's yeah. a, it's a family niche. Good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, any bankable stars in it? That is a no for right now. But that is another question coming about, like okay. you know, like name talent what's being the... worth the ROI spend. And, okay. You know, and what's thing. the what's the budget? Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say. <laughs> is it is, is it when you say micro budget? We're look. It's, are we talking six figures or under six figures? Um, six figures. So um, so it's okay. So it's a six figure project. Okay, so that's not for my. That's not a micro budget for me. That's a low budget for me. Okay, uh, micro okay. budget is like I made a five thousand like dollars movie. Three thousand. Okay, and right, a three thousand so dollar movie. It wasn't five thousand dollars. Okay, yeah. it wasn't five thousand. <laughs> Okay, so so your question is how to break out of what? What do you mean? Like, what's the question? So, because you were you were mentioning how, um, like, for distribution, everything is like just super traditional in one lane. When it really should be doing X Y Z, what is the X Y Z that they should be doing? Because it's a family chef. It's like a family film with a chef involved. Mm. You have the potential of teaming up with a, let's say, local celebrity chef or something like that. Mm. And since you guys are in a school, I'm assuming you have resources so <laughs> yeah. you can possibly put together an online course. Yeah. You could arguably build out a little bit of an online business around this film and generate other revenue that's not about that. And then you can start targeting not only the family, people who are interested in family films, which is super broad and it's very mm -hmm. difficult to target that. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. that's why like when you said chef, I'm like, okay, people who are interested in films about cooking or films about chef, that's a market. That's a niche. Start focusing on those. You could build some other stuff out around it. Whereas in hopefully you'll be able to get some money up front from a traditional distributor. And there are probably really good distributors who you can get. You I mean, you could probably get a nice licensing deal from Pure Flix or um, something like that. But without stars, um, it's going to be difficult uh, unless you follow a certain format. If I was making a movie about a chef, a family movie about a chef, I would incorporate in the storyline somewhere, if it makes sense for the story, that he or she starts creating online courses on cooking. Mm. 
<laughs> nice. So, nice. So then you start implanting the idea of online courses of cooking. And imagine if you watch your movie, you enjoy the movie. And at the end of the movie, it's like, if you love this movie, you can actually yeah. buy the courses by the chefs yeah. here. Like if you actually want to make the desserts that were featured in this film, here you go. <laughs> right. And you, and then you yeah. could build out a blog around different desserts and different recipes mm -hmm. and different things. You yeah. could do interviews with this chef and other chefs and you could do, there's a lot of things, but it's all work. Yeah. It's all work. And it's outside Absolutely. the traditional way you think about making a movie. Yeah. This is yeah. the film entrepreneur way of making a movie, yeah. which is very different than Ugh, make movie, ugh, finish movie, <laughs> ugh, distribute movie, ugh, sit on beach and collect yeah. check. Um, yeah. That's, yep. that is a very different model. And, and, and it's not for everybody. You were mentioning about name talent. This was mm -hmm. one of our other listener questions. He was asking, do you think all name talent are worth the ROI spend? And it sounds like it is. Well, it is and it isn't. So it all depends on who you're getting. So mm -hmm. if you have a name, and, and, and the name could be very different in different genres. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a, you know, a chef, a, just a, a celebrity chef who has a million followers or 2 million followers on Instagram, that's name talent mm -hmm. that you can insert into your movie, which I, by the way, would be doing that anyway. I would try to go out and get as many influencers in the, in the, in the, in the chef space. Yeah. Um, maybe in the, in mind mindfulness space, if that's part of the storyline and mm -hmm. connect those and try to insert them in the movies. Cause a lot of these guys want to be in movies yeah. and they'll be like, Oh my God. Yeah. I'd love to be in a movie. Sure. Yeah. Can you yeah. do a cameo? Mm -hmm. They'll be ecstatic yeah. to do something like that. Yeah. And they'll promote it to their audience and blah, blah, blah. And then maybe you could partner with them. And now mm -hmm. imagine partnering with an influencer in the chef space who's in your movie. And then once they're in the movie and it's, it's a cameo, it's a cameo. They're playing themselves. Yeah. Let's yeah. say they're playing themselves. And then afterwards you sit down with them and go, look, man, um, this movie's coming out. Can we partner on a course on, on how to cook flambe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And they go, sure, we'd love to. We'll, we'll, we'll promote it on our side. You promote it on your side. And, you know, let's come up with some, some terms that make sense for both of us. Yeah. And then he promotes it or she promotes it to their 3 million followers. I promise you, you'll make more money off that course than you will, than you will make off of selling that movie traditionally. Wow. Now, wouldn't it be great that you make more money selling it, uh, selling the courses based on the movie? And also make a little bit of money traditionally. Mm -hmm. So that's that's that. But as as far as um, name talent, non-traditional name talent, traditional name talent has a dollar value attached, mm -hmm. and it depends on the genre they're in. So like Dean Kane, Dean Kane was Superman back in yep. the nineties. Yep. Okay. So Dean Kane does a lot of family movies, mm -hmm. and he's not unobtainable. You know, you, mm -hmm. you know, if he likes the project, you, you send him a proper, you know, bid. He'll come out for a few days for, you know, X amount of dollars. Not that expensive, yeah. believe it or not. I'm not saying and I don't know what Dean's rate is and things like that. But traditionally, you know, you're you're not in, in the, you know, crazy world like you can get Nicolas Cage for a million bucks a week. <laughs> you know, in, yeah, in yeah, the, in the but the, the yeah. second Nicolas Cage is in your movie. You've got a pre pre-sale of five million bucks automatically mm -hmm. just because Nick is in the movie. Yeah. Do you see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and the same thing goes for Bruce Willis and Stallone and these guys, these guys all they'll show up for million, million and a half a week, <clears throat> which sounds like a lot. But in the scope of business, you bring a Stallone in. That's a probably a 10 or 15 million dollar buy worldwide mm -hmm. because it's Stallone. And I mean, I'm sure they're not that cheap, but you, you get me. They're not 20 million dollars like they mm -hmm. used to be. They'll show up for three or four days, mm -hmm. shoot out their scenes and you're done. Yeah. So some name talent has that value, but then other name talent, there's uh, what I like to call paycheck actors. 
mm. who will just show up for the paycheck and they'll do anything and everything first come first serve. Mm. I won't call out the names, <laughs> but there are these actors and they do have value, mm-hmm. but sometimes that value diminishes depending on the year. I worked on uh, as a post guy mm. on two to three movies with the same actor in it. Mm. And he, that year he made 17 movies. His value completely got diluted. Yeah. So when this poor producer slash director was so excited about like, Hey, I got this person in the movie. I'm like, Oh, that's great. And he goes, I got two other movies I've been working with him on. And he's like, Oh, that's cool. And then he went out to the marketplace to try to sell that movie. And they go, that's okay. We already got two other movies with him in it Yeah. because he was everywhere. Mm-hmm. So this year it was worthless. And yeah. that was what he was banking his entire budget on. No. Do you see, uh, Do you yeah. see how it works? Yeah, so yeah, yeah is, is it valuable? Yes. Some, mm-hmm. some name talent is valuable, but there's so many different definitions of name talent where there's people like that, like, uh, you know, Dean Kane, Michael Madsen, Eric Roberts, Danny Trejo, these guys that you see all over the place, mm-hmm. they'll show up, you know, you pay them and if they like the project, they'll do it. But then there's influencers, a chef in a chef movie that has 3 million Instagram followers is more valuable than Michael Madsen. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that need to happen for that to work. But anytime you can get a face, a recognizable face or name in your movie, it's a good thing. It's all about ROI. Mm -hmm. So if you have a $100,000 movie, you got to pay 50 grand to get this person in. It's generally not a well-balanced scenario, but if that $50,000 automatically guarantees you a three, $400,000 buy or Mm pre-sales, do the math. Uh, specifically for gearing gadgets, like what software or even or even resources, I guess, for you too. Uh, what are your favorite old reliables? Um, DaVinci Resolve is what uh, is what I'm I, I use for all my posts now mm-hmm. for color for editing. Yeah. I was one of the first guys editing features on DaVinci. I love Blackmagic cameras. I think they're great. I think they're the best bang for your buck anywhere. I've done tests where I've shot with an and this is heresy, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> I shot with an Alexa. <laughs> And I shot, I shot with a black magic. Yeah. And if you shoot down the middle with the same lenses and the same lighting, you mm. shoot it right down the middle, perfectly exposed. Mm. I promise you, you probably won't be able to tell the normal, the normal, normal human beings will not be able to tell mm. the moment when the Alexa becomes the Alexa is when you start losing light. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, this, yeah. and it starts to break and, and it'll hold on to that image so mm. much more that technology is so much more solid in black magics, mm-hmm. but that means that you're not doing your job as a cinematographer. <laughs> yeah. And I know yeah. personally cinematographers who shot Alexa on sets of Oscar nominated films, mm. and they always have one or two black magics on set quietly to shoot a little bit of B-roll or pickup shots. But mm. he, and I ask him, why can't you use it? I'm like, I can't, man. It's, it's politics, man. I can't, but that's mm. it. So for me, black magic has been my go-to for cameras. Mm. Any specific one? I'm old school. So, I mean, I shot my last movie on the 1080p pocket, which was Awesome. A 16, super 16 uh, sensor. It looked gorgeous. <laughs> I haven't gotten the 6K yet, but I have the 4.6K, the Ursa, 4.6K okay. old school. Okay. Probably next cameras I'll get, I'll probably get, I'll probably get the 6K pocket. Lenses. I love the Sigma 18 to 35. Ah. Great photo yeah. lens. Are you talking about like Sigma, like Sigma art? Like that kind of? Yeah, the, sorry, the art lenses. Yeah, yeah, the the art, lenses. yeah, the art lenses. Oh man, Yeah, the crispy. 18 to 35. Yeah, they're crispy. They're beautiful. Uh, it works really, really well with... Um, with the black magic mm. and I've shot my features there. No one knows. No one knows. <laughs> no one knows. And I love vintage glass too. I have a mm. lot of vintage glass that Ooh, I just have old like steel what? cameras. I have uh, my favorite lens is the Canoptic 5.8. What quirk is, what quirk about that one do you love about it? Well, it's 5.8 and it doesn't fisheye. Oh, okay. Okay. 
So there's that. Okay. It is the, it is nicknamed the Kubrick lens okay. because it is the baby brother of the 9.8 Canoptic, which is the 35 millimeter lens. I had the 16 version, which okay. I use on the pocket. The 35 millimeter one, which is the 9.8, that one, Kubrick shot Shining and Clockwork Orange scenes with both of those in there. So you'll see anytime you see a super wide shot. Super wide, yeah. I mean, super wide, like super, super wide. Yeah. Um, if, if For all the film geeks out there, in the maze shot, all the maze stuff was shot with the canoptic in the snow at the okay. end of Shining. That was, and then the scene right before the raping in, in, in Clockwork Orange, <laughs> yeah. which is such an insane movie. I can't believe you got away with that. The doorbell rings and, and it's like a pan over from the living room to the study. And then the mm. doorbell rings. Yeah. That is, that's a canoptic. It's so wide. You're just like, interesting. what? And then when, when they all come down and they start, you know, doing what they're going to do in that scene. Mm. Um, that's all canoptic. So it's an old French lens. They don't make it anymore. It's vintage mm. and it's stunning. You know, I was over at a, a friend of mine's, uh, he's a big director and he's like, can you bring over the little pocket camera? I see <laughs> this guy makes, you know, 50, $70 million movies. Yeah. And I brought it over and he was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. What is this? Man. Oh my God. He goes, is there a 35 version of this? Why don't I know about this stuff? Dude. I'm like, because this is like super geek stuff. Like this is heavy, deep geek uh, lens stuff. So I'm a lens fiend. I love lenses. So um, wrapping up a couple of the other listener questions. When working on a low budget project, are there any tips for trying to convince a working professional to work at a much lower rate? Get them really excited about the project. Ex really share your vision of what you're trying to do. And if you can maybe do something that they haven't done before mm. or they haven't been a part of before, I mean, it's going to be tough to get the grips to come down on their rates because they're just, they're just, they're grips. So there's yeah. like, it's no, they're like, I'm not going to put this on my reel. <laughs> that that's going to be more difficult, but for the artistic side, the production designers, the, the costume designers, the makeup people, the VFX artists, these kind of the DP, all of these kind of more creative heads, you got to get them excited about the project. The last uh, listener question is, can careers jumpstart from a strong festival run in today's industry, or is it more about quantity slash history slash experience? That was the world of the 1990s. Linkletter came out with Slacker and Mariachi and Clerks and Brothers McMullen and all those yeah. films that came out during that time. That's where that myth still lives. I've been involved with filmmakers uh, and films that have been in Sundance and won Sundance. Mm. Uh, I saw firsthand what it does. Mm. Uh, nothing. It can. It can. It all depends on the movie. It all depends on the timing. It all depends on where you are, when you are, how you are. Mm. Does it automatically mean anything? No. Can it? It's not the guarantee that it used to be. It's mm. just not. I'm not trying to dash home, dreams no. here, but it is the reality. So I want filmmakers to understand it's not. Does it happen for some people? Absolutely. There's yeah. always the outliers, but the majority, no. This is the way I look at independent filmmaking in general. If you're waiting for someone else to give you the opportunity to make your film, you will more than likely fail. You need to figure out a way to make a living as a filmmaker and do your own thing and create enough noise with your films and with what you're doing that maybe someone from Mount Hollywood will show up and knock on your door and go, hey, you're doing some cool stuff. I'd like to offer you a job or I'd like to represent you. Mm. That's the route I would go. Mm. But if that knock never happens, then you're okay because you've built a business doing what you love to do. Mm. And that is where most filmmakers fail. Mm. They're always trying to get seen, get discovered, get found. Mm. That does not exist. 
Does it happen every once in a while? Sure. Hmm. But you just have to do the work. When you think about lottery ticket winners, yeah. let's, 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 let's analyze who we're talking about. El Mariachi, Robert Rodriguez, still the most mythical one of them all, right? Because he was the first $7,000 movie, right? Mm. Then you're talking about Richard Linkletter, possibly, because he kind of like that, but, you know, Clerks. Okay, yeah. Um, Paranormal Activity, Mm. Blair Witch Project. Mm. Anything happened in the last year, in the (laughs) last five years, in the last 10 years, really? Mm. Mm. I had the guy, I had uh, Max, the director of Palm Springs, who sold his movie at Sundance for $17.5 million mm-hmm. and 69 cents, because mm-hmm. now they have the official biggest movie ever sold at Sundance. Mm. And he told me the entire story of how he got there. And it was this magical, like, oh, this person knows this person, this person knows this mm-hmm. person. Oh, it got into the hands of Andy Samberg. Andy Samberg's like, sure, I'll bring you on. Oh, I'll get my buddy J.K. Simmons to come on. Mm-hmm. We'll go, oh, I'll bring this actress on. And we'll all go out and do it. And they sold it for $17.5 million. Mercy. But it's like that history and experience that they were asking about. You know, it's like you actually need you need to build like the so you can get to that. So you can get to that. That doesn't happen without that history and experience. Really. No, you've got to have some sort of track record. And I think yeah. that Max had either directed just one movie or I think this might have been his first feature. But he had directed a bunch of shorts mm-hmm. and he wrote the script. Mm-hmm. So if you can own the material and own something that's really popular, you have more po- uh, more power mm-hmm. and more say in where it goes and what you do with it. Yeah. That's well, another piece of advice, but don't hold on to the lottery ticket mentality because it's it's not going to it's not going to serve you well. I feel like that lottery ticket kind of translates these days also as like I'm going to get on Netflix or I'm going to get on Hulu. And I because I, you've you've gotten something on Hulu and I, like I had chatted with somebody else who he had gotten his film on Netflix and he was like, you know, honestly, like I've I've done it. I've done the thing that indie filmmakers want to do i've done it but it's honestly a little disappointing because i know what netflix pays and i know what hulu pays and it's not what they think it is (laughs) yeah yeah you think it's 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 just not it's they think it's like woohoo stack and cheddar it's Mm -hmm. not it's Mm -hmm. not that they don't do that they just don't yeah so and even if you get on netflix unless you get like half a million up front which doesn't happen (laughs) It doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. You get your film up there and people, a lot of people could see it and yeah. all of that kind of good yeah. stuff. But, you know, it can Definitely. it lead to other things. Mm-hmm. Sure. Could you get some more work out of it? Possibly. It's a good thing, but it's not it's not going to be the same thing for everybody. So what current project are you excited about? Well, on the show, I, I'm going to give you an exclusive. Oh, I've never fantastic. spoken about this to uh, to anybody else yet because as of, uh, when this recording comes out, it will hopefully be released. So now I have actually have pressure. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. To make sure I release it before then, I, I wanted to create a new company that helps filmmakers fund, finish, and distribute their films. Okay. And there is no other company on the planet that I know of that does all of these things all under one roof. Interesting. It's called Filmmaker Process. Now, Filmmaker Process offers comprehensive services that will help your film get to the finish line. We provide budget and scheduling, business and financial forecasting, pitch decks, production contracts, and form templates, payroll, post-production services, trailer editorial, poster DVD, and VOD artwork creation, and much, much more. Our goal is to assist filmmakers working at any budget level, get their film produced and distributed. Interesting. So if you need a pitch deck for your screenplay or for your project when you're trying to get to investors, 
we can create that pitch deck for you. Yeah. If you need a budget and schedule, which you will, if you're going to try to pitch to an investor, we can do that for you. If you need sales estimates from international, so like, like perfect example, your micro budget film, mm. I would ask you, okay, who's, who's in it? No one's in it. Okay. Well, this is the forecast. Uh-huh. Doesn't look good. Um, but, um, <laughs> but if okay. you got, but if you put, but if you put a name in it, they'll go, okay, well in this country, this will sell and this will sell. Mm-hmm. And this is done by a real sales agency who has sold hundreds and hundreds okay. of films. So they really have the real numbers and it's a really detailed thing. We have legal contracts and forms. We have $25,000 worth of contracts mm. that are real contracts, solid, not rinky dink things that has been used on hundreds of 20 plus million dollar films. Okay. Post services, we have a post house that we've partnered with to provide independent filmmakers with everything you need to finish your movie and trailer editing. Mm-hmm. Like we do a trailer editing for 2,500 bucks mm-hmm. and you get a full blown properly done yeah. trailer by a professional trailer editor and yeah. there's different packages. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cause I was curious if it's like, all right, is this like a, a one is it project by project basis where it's just like, we take you through the whole entire thing or it's just like, well, I actually only need this one thing. Oh no, it's no, no, this is not all of it. This is what, this is all piecemeal. Okay. So nice. you can pick up whatever you want. So you could get, if you, I, I just need trailer editing and someone to design my poster for me. We got you. Yeah. Uh, oh, I got, I need all my film deliverables because I just got signed with the distributor or I'm going to self-distribute it and put it out on these platforms. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea how, what distribute the deliverables I need. I can get you deliverables because that has been the biggest thing yes. ever is film deliverables because filmmakers uh, do not understand film deliverables at all. <laughs> and they're like, oh, iTunes needs this kind of bit rate and yeah, this yeah. thing. They're and this random thing. checklists. <laughs> And we have that as well. And we have payroll. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we partner with one of the leading payroll companies uh, in the business. So if you're doing payroll for your film, we can do that as well. So it is something that's never really been put together all under one roof. And yeah. I'm hoping that it will help a lot of filmmakers out Interesting. there. So, so I'm really excited. So it's filmmakerprocess.com. 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 It lives on the Indie Film Hustle website, mm-hmm. but that's the direct link. But that's what, what's going on there. So I'm just trying to build out as many resources as I can for filmmakers throughout Absolutely. all of the things that I do through IFH Academy for courses and IFH TV, the streaming service for filmmakers. And I just launched a new podcast called the Next Level Soul mm-hmm. Podcast dedicated to figuring out more deeper questions about life, about a person's spirituality, not religious or spirituality mm. about just asking the big questions about life. Mm. Like, why are we here? How do we find our, our mission mm. in life? How do we get through, you know, the obstacles that stop us? Yeah. How do we deal yeah. with our egos? Yeah. All of these kind of larger questions that I really couldn't tackle in my filmmaking world mm. university and the film also universe. Mm. I've touched upon it and some mm-hmm. stuff like yeah, med- yeah, meditation yeah. and stuff, yeah. but like to go deep dive into those kind of things. And we've got some very big guests coming up in the next couple of weeks, next two, three weeks. And that's at nextlevelsoul.com. Mm. All right. Last question that I ask every guest, what question should I have asked you? What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn whether in the film business or in life? Ooh. To answer that question, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, uh, is patience. Mm. I needed to learn patience. And I, when I had, and I'm going to be that douchey LA guy who drops names, but when I had Richard Linkletter on my show <laughs> and I was talking to, to Rick, he said a profound, profound question for all independent filmmakers. However long you think it's going to take, it's going to take twice as long and be twice as hard. Ooh. 
And I was like, wow, that's, that's from an OG (laughs) indie filmmaker. Like he's been around. He's, I think he just turned 60 this year. Mm. So he's been around. And for him to say that, I was like, wow, that makes all the sense in the world. And he's absolutely Mm -hmm. right. And patience. I was so impatient. I was like, why hasn't Hollywood figured out I'm a genius? Why haven't I, why hasn't Steven Spielberg knocked on my door and given me $20 million to make my opus? Why is this not happening? Don't they understand I've watched all the movies? Don't they understand I worked at a video store just like Quentin Tarantino and, and Kevin Smith? Why don't I not get this treatment? Where is my, where's the truck of money that's supposed to come and, and fall on, on my doorstep? But patience, patience is the biggest thing. It's going to take you a lot longer. It can't be a one-year plan. It's got to be a 10-year plan. And if you don't absolutely love this, get out, do a Jordan Peele and just get out. (laughs) It is tough. It's brutal. It Mm. is merciless and it will crush you Mm. if you don't love it. Because if you don't love it and you're in it for fame or in it for, God forbid, money Mm. or or whatever (laughs) other reasons you're in this for, if you don't love what you're doing, Mm Get out, go find another job, go get a real job, go work at a carnival. And find what you do love. And find what your what that thing is for you. Because if it's not this, this is too, it's just, just too tough, man. It is just too, too tough. The disease that is filmmaking would not let me go. It just kept calling me back like a siren because mm-hmm. like, this is what you need to be doing, Alex. Yeah. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for doing what you do. I appreciate you you pulling up the good fight out here. So I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and on Instagram and check out more episodes at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. If you have comments or know someone who would be a great guest on our show, send in your suggestions to Tanya at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on The Practical Filmmaker.